welcome to another episode of uh, just wonderful conversations that I've had and continue to have. Uh, this is called um, Strength for Today, Bright Hope for Tomorrow, God's Vision for the Next United Methodist Church. And today I am joined by two colleagues and we are very new colleagues. Um, <laughs> I'm here I've just hit 10 months, right? So, um, and and Jonathan, you're even fewer than that. So uh, 10 days. <laughs> we, are, we are growing together, uh, living into this new order together, but um, I am delighted to have Dwayne Stinson and the Reverend Jonathan Page, who are our directors of Connectional Ministry, and I'll let them talk about kind of their different roles and their areas of oversight, but I'm delighted to have them both um, full of energy, very creative, very faithful and focused and um, and just a lot of fun, which is, you know, always top of my list. I do not like unfun people. And I don't think Jesus either, right? When mm -hmm. when the when when the religious folks are like griping because I'm having too much fun with sinners, I'm on the right track, right? I'm, so I'm I'm all out for Christ like in that regard. But anyhow, we have been working on annual conference theme and have discerned uh, with a great group of folks because I don't believe vision comes from one person. I really believe that the Holy Spirit, a lot of times it comes from the most, the least expected person or a group, but where we settled on the word that really uh, drove our conversation and caught our imagination was movement. And part of that stems from, I still remember my Rex Matthews, he he was my theology of Wesley and Methodism uh, professor at Candler. And he said, if you want to know anything about, if you want to truly understand Methodism, you have to understand the person of John Wesley and at the heart of him was movement, right? He rode that horse all over, was everything about him was about movement. And so then we had a great discussion about movements in music right uh every movement feels a little different but all are important for the whole and then we talked about three movements that want to inform all of our conversation over the next maybe four or five years the three movements of um the methodist movement the three movements that we want to talk about are first of all uh the movement of the holy spirit and how it transforms human lives takes us from you know, God goes before us and, and draws us in, and then uh, we become more and more like Christ, and our whole goal in life is a movement toward perfection and love. So that's the first movement. Second movement was the Methodist movement, the movement uh, that John Wesley and the early Methodists had to uh, reform the Church of England, to break it outside the walls, to really be there, a church for all people in all places, and then the third movement, which really is a movement beyond the walls of the church, a movement to those outside, to those who nobody else is speaking to. Um, I have seen some churches advertised as we want the people that nobody else wants. And I think that's the heart of Christianity in a nutshell. So I'm delighted to have this conversation with Dwayne and Jonathan. We'll see where the spirit leads us. But what part of this is we want to talk about how how we lead the annual conference and how we see the annual conference's role, which is always important and really important to the next chapter of Methodism. So the first thing that I get asked about everywhere 
that is always, always on everybody's forefront of their concern are metrics. How do we measure churches? How do we evaluate clergy? How do we measure uh, what's important to measure? And I, I would argue that uh, it's important to start measuring different things. So I'll turn it over your, to you guys to you guys, and uh, hear your thoughts on what should we be measuring and where have we missed the boat in the past? Well, I'll jump in. Uh, I, first off, thank you, Bishop, for the invitation and the chance to be a part of this. Um, one of the one of the things that I would observe is that for as at least as long as I've been in ministry, which in uh, in pastoral ministry, it's been about a decade and a half. We have focused exclusively on quantitative metrics that are largely internal to the church. So, you know, how many people do you have each week on Sunday morning for worship? How many people do you have coming in for Sunday school or for small groups? How much money are you contributing to mission? Things like this. And that's, you know, one of the things that I've found is that that's not bad data. It's just incomplete data. Um, so if that's the only thing we're measuring, then all of a sudden we really start to emphasize, okay, well, the, the measure of how we understand a church to be effective is, well, how many people do you have on a Sunday morning? And eventually what we end up with is what I might call preacher math. Uh, and, and so, you know, uh, and, and listen, guilty is charged, right? <laughs> you know, like we, we, we definitely had 250 people in worship, not, uh, you know, five so oh, well, i gotta tell this story because i love this story yeah. we had, we had a, a hot shot pastor in florida and his church was growing by great guns and you know his metrics were off the chart and a friend of mine uh cornered him one day at a clergy meeting and said hey i have say i had a kid and they came to your church okay now let me get this straight you would count them at sunday school and then part of that hour is children's church. You would count them at that. And then you would bring them in the sanctuary to be with the adults for a certain amount of time. And you'd count them for that. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. And finally she shook her after this whole conversation, she just shook her head and said, you know what? If I sent my kid to your church, I'd have to pin a note on them that said, please count me once. But that that's the creative. I mean, and now you know, I kind of, I kind of chuckle. Some of the online numbers, I'm like, really? Golly, you have a bigger movement than like the Kardashians. That's pretty right. impressive, right? Well, and if you're having that kind of movement, like you would expect that the community around you is transforming completely, exactly. right? Like that's, and and so that's where you end up with a little bit of a question of like, okay, well, if we've, if we've got all these thousands of people showing up to our online worship services, what what's the impact right like how how do we how do we gauge that and so i think you know certainly we don't need to do away with quantitative measures i think a part of it is how do we supplement that mm -hmm. um you know there's in addition to quantitative measures we have qualitative measures how do we do storytelling but that also is something that can get directed in other in other ways if we don't have some degree of standardization around that and so one of the things that i'm hopeful for in virginia is what it will look like to build a team of folks maybe clergy and laity who can help to discern what what that can look like in a in a faithful capacity uh, last week i had the chance to talk with uh, dr doug poe who's the head of the lewis center at wesley seminary and I was asking him this question about like, okay, so so what what are you imagining metrics look like in the United Methodist Church in 2024 and beyond?
on and he said well you know jonathan like if i really had that answer i'd be retiring early because <laughs> i'd you know i'd be a millionaire if you can figure out exactly what that is i think the the other piece of it that ends up being kind of kind of a part of all of this is how do you allow context to drive some of that wow. uh, there's a really interesting movement in in the u.s right now called asset-based community development that's really about how do you instead of you know creating this space where everything is exactly the same or equality how do we create equity in spaces that allow for the faithful stories of what fruitfulness look like in specific neighborhoods specific communities how do we allow those stories to emerge and tell about those places of transformation that are happening. Um, that, that to me is a lot of what that, that future place looks like. How are we engaging? How are we developing? And then how are we flourishing? And how's that happening for individuals, congregations, and communities? And um, that's, that's a piece that I, I tend to be pretty interested in. Well, we're trying to figure out how to measure the immeasurable, right? We're yeah. trying to figure out how do you measure transform lives through Christ? How do you measure transform communities because of a church's influence? You know, it's kind of like, can you imagine a school and you would measure buildings, right? How many hmm. buildings they had. And then you would measure attendance, right? And then you would measure um, how much money was given to that school every year. But you never, you never evaluated, are the kids educated, right? Are the kids, <laughs> they, they have perfect attendance, but they can't read. And right. sometimes I feel like in our churches, well, we, even huge churches, I served a huge church. Did I think it was especially deep? It was like, and I've heard so many United Methodist churches described as a mile wide and an inch deep, right? Hmm. The oh, they lit up the metrics for attendance but really not so much in transform people. And so how do we measure that? We're not so good at telling the story of how God has transformed us individually or how our church has seen the Holy Spirit at work in our communities. Like those stories, I agree with Jonathan. I think, I think metrics need to look like the ministry that the church is doing where it is, right? You measure the things that matter. You measure the 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 effort the church is making, the impact the church is having, the people that the church is engaging with outside the walls. Those are things that we have not done a good job of measuring. Um, in campus ministry, we're actually talking about how to evaluate campus ministries based on the values we have as a conference for what campus ministry should be accomplishing. Yeah. Um, now, we haven't solved that riddle yeah. yet, but we're working on it because that's impact, right? That's that's the, the impact of ministry. And ultimately, if you can't tell the story, the numbers have no meaning. Yeah. Well, and and you speak to the problem of metrics, right? Yeah. Um, I have I am a voice in the wilderness on many college boards that I sit on because they are in the relentless pursuit of US news and report rankings. Mm -hmm. And those metrics drive. And it's all about excellence and it's all about achievement and being, but man, a lot of those institutions that are like, their their students are miserable. They're not well-rounded. The suicide and, and addiction rates are off the charts, but boy, we're going to be excellent. And I'm like, really? Well, it's and. And you end up encouraging, like a, a great example, I just finished my doctorate at the University of Southern California, 
the, their school of education is now suspended from U.S. News and World Report because they were falsifying data to try and up their U.S. News and World Report ranking, which makes me feel really great about the student debt that I've incurred to get a degree from there. But, you know, like the the idea is that and that's the piece that I think is also missing in the conversation is what's the accountability that goes with that? Mm. You know, it's not an accountability that says, OK, well, you have fewer people in worship or you, you don't have as good of a story. So your pastor is going to have to move or your church is going to have to close, but it's really, how do we, how do we see the storytelling that we do in the annual conference level as a part of our resourcing work to say, hey, if we see decline, or if we see that the story is not matching what our expectation was, well, how are we helping each other to get to the place where we are able to see transformation? It's getting out of that culture of fear and scarcity that if I tell the truth, I'm going to get punished for it and moving instead into this place of saying, hey, we're, we're going to be accountable because we want the best out of each other. And that doesn't mean that you need to fear that everything in your life is going to crumble because your data is bad. It means that you're now going to have the support to hopefully create better a better future than what you have today. Which is the danger of our current metrics is that churches feel hesitant to partner with other churches because they don't know who gets to count the numbers, right? I hear this all the time when we talk about doing collaborative ministry. There's this fear that you're gonna be judged by your peers or that other churches are gonna get credit for your work. Um, So we're actually hindering the connection that we stand for as the United Methodist Church. Right, well, and I think this is a good time to insert I always tell clergy, go in and tell us exactly what's going on there, right? Don't sugarcoat it. Don't paint it. We need to know because we can't we can't be more effective and we can't resource you appropriately. And we can't, you know, and part of it, um, and, and I want this to be heard loud and clear. I think that, well, I still think back when I was a DS, I went to this little town called The Hague. I dare you to find it in Florida. It's right outside of Gainesville, a little tiny community. And they had, Hague United Methodist Church had like 20 people. And by most metrics, they would have been like, oh, that church is ripe for closure. That church, you know, that that group of 20 people, I would have joined them in a heartbeat. They they were essential to that community. You could walk down the street in Hague and say, hey, where if you got in trouble, where would you go for help? And that Methodist church, mm. they've got it going on and they had it going on. But that said, I went to five other, you know, 20 member United Methodist churches and they didn't give a, they didn't give a rip what was going on outside the doors. They were just, they were just there to be a club or mm. a family unit. And I think we've got to just be clear the definition of a church is that you extend yourself on behalf of Christ to your community, to those around. And if you aren't doing that, by definition, you're not a church. Now you can put your own label to it, family chapel, whatever. But we, if you are willing to be a church, if you're willing to be in ministry to your community, if you're willing to be salt, light, and yeast, and reach out in love and really show concern, We'll move heaven and earth to get you resources. Amen. If you're just a family chapel, we need every every church is essential to our mission because every church is an outpost for Christ in a community. 
And, and, it, and if you're not an outpost for Christ in your community, we need one there, right? If you're, <laughs> so there's no, and I will go on record as saying, there is no, the only thing worse than no church at all is a bad church, right? And I've been to them and you walk in and the people don't give, a, they don't care if you're there. They don't know if you're there and you leave feeling lonelier than when you got there. And that is a bad representation of Christ. So how do we make, sh and so it's part of our mission. We have to do this. If you are not the outpost for Christ in a community, we are duty bound. This is my job to make sure that there is one there. So right. we need your resources to put one there if you're not willing to be that. I think it, it so much of what you're saying, Bishop, like there are two things that I think every church should probably be asking. The, the first is what is the real need of our community, not the assumed need? I love, um, there's a story of a church in Waynesboro uh, called Embrace. Uh, that's a, a, well, it's a United Methodist ministry. And and when they were getting started, one of the things they did is they they literally went door to door around their community to ask what resources could the church provide you that would be of assistance to you and make your life uh, a more meaningful life, you know? And, and so that led to a clothing closet, it led to a food pantry and healthcare. And so all sorts of things like that, but that kind of mentality of not just saying, Hey, um, you know, church XYZ down the road has a food pantry. Wouldn't it be great if we had one too, without verifying that that's actually what people around you need, right? Like it's the real need. And then, and then the question has to be, who is our primary audience? Um, you know, I think so many churches struggle with this. And and, and this is something I, I'm pretty fresh out of the local church into, into conference work. But I think a lot of pastors end up struggling with feeling this tension between their primary audience being the congregation they're appointed to and the community they're appointed to. And the reality is that, like, we don't have a ton of regional churches in the Virginia Annual Conference where we've got people driving in from 30 miles away to go to church. Usually the people who are attending the church are a part of the community. And so if your primary audience is the community you're serving, the church should be a part of that, right? Like it doesn't mean that somehow your membership is now like a lesser sort of class of citizen or something like that. It means that they're bound in together with the community and that when you seek that sort of mutuality and togetherness, you're, you're seeing the benefit and the flourishing of everybody together instead of having what you describe of like that country club mentality of like, yeah. we're going to make sure we're good in here, that everybody who pays dues is taken care of, and then we'll deal with everybody else if we have time later after the after we're off the clock. Yeah, and one of our roles, I think, Jonathan, as the conference office is to help churches learn more about their own communities, right? We have resources. We have Mission Insight, which is a great resource. We spend over $12,000 a year so that churches in this conference can learn about the demographics of the community around them. And it's so much fun to watch a, con a little congregation in a rural area look at that data for the first time and say, wow, I never knew that there were that many single parents in our community. And how can we be in ministry with those single parents? Right. That to me is the, the, the resourcing role that we have as a conference is to help those local churches learn their communities in a way that maybe walk, walking through the neighborhood, people tend to see what they look for as opposed to what's there. And it's beautiful when it's lived out. You know, I just listened to a compelling thing about uh, really to have a healthy child. And I this was the this was the church of my childhood 
um, and really a hallmark of the black church that I love, every adult's a parent to every child, right? Um, I, I would get, if I was misbehaving, there was a whole group of adults, but they were also there to support me, to love me, to encourage me. And, you know, I was reading about Maori uh, in New Zealand, the Maori, uh, the linkage in those communities. And what they found was there were always four adults intimately involved in any child's life. And these were not, you know, and, and this was like, you know, somebody 80, somebody 60, somebody 40, and somebody 20. But they all had different roles in shaping that child. And the children are so much healthier in all ways because of it. And then they pointed out, if you're a single parent without community, this will have lasting impact on your child and you, right? Who Who's equipped to do that? And so if a church has compassion for those not in it, I mean, part of this is who in our community, it's not about what we can give you resource-wise, it's about how can we extend the love of Christ to you? And I would argue to a to a single parent, the love of Christ comes in more than one person having, mm. a, having care for the child or uh, one great community, small church, but they realize they had a lot of uh, caregivers of Alzheimer's patients in their community. So they launched into a tremendous program of daycare for folks who had dementia and, and support for caregivers. So sometimes it's about what niche can we be Christ in? And it's about an outward focus, right? It's not mm. about how do we serve ourselves? How do we give more to our children? How do we, how do we, it's about how do we be servants of all? You know, years ago, I attended a um, workshop. It was for school counselors, actually. And I somehow snuck in as a youth director at a local church. And the whole focus was uh, on addressing children who have experienced trauma. And um, as I, I can't remember the details and I wish I could, but as I, I listened to that whole day of presentation about the things that children who have experienced trauma, those who experience multiple markers of trauma need, I thought, well, that's the church. Yeah. The church offers community. The church offers stability. The church off. I, I was sitting there thinking the church is, the, this is what the church exists for. And yet these school counselors are sitting here because they have buildings full of children in the same neighborhoods as a lot of our Methodist churches right. who are desperate for the kind of love and attention and mentoring and compassion that we're called to offer every day. Right. Well, and now I got it. Now you set me up because I have to mention this. One of the books that I found compelling recently is a book called What Happened to You? Hmm. And it is, you know, it's written by Oprah Winfrey and a neuropsychiatrist, you know, expert, lifelong expert on trauma. And um, and the whole premise of the book is that when somebody's messed up, we shouldn't ask what's wrong with you. We should ask what happened to you. And he, the doctor points out that um, fully 40%, and this is probably underreported of children, have trauma. And 60% of adults have trauma. 
And I would argue that all of us through COVID have had trauma. All of us through the disaffiliations that we've seen have trauma. I mean, trauma is a unifying force. And Oprah talks about um, raised by her grandmother, um, sexually abused as a child, all of these traumatic, had a traumatic childhood. And, and when asked what saved her, she said, what saved me was my church home. What say because it was connection. And the doctor's point is the only thing that can cure trauma is connection. Right. And we see just how fragmented our world is. There's no connection. And if the church can again be the connection, we're vitally needed. Christ's healing power is there. We just have to offer it. Well, and what's so beautiful, Bishop, is that like that's our nature as United Methodists. We, we we are connectional i i think you know I, I joked um when the call came that uh asking if i would i would serve in the capacity that i'm serving now i i kind of joked that I, I used to have the conference center on like my do not disturb list because i knew that when whenever i'd get a call from from glenn allen it was like oh well what do they need now right and 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 this sort of like we're this this expectation and we've got you know this isn't the fault of one person or anything like that but it's it's just sort of a culture that oftentimes our annual conference is looking for well what can we get from the local church to resource the camp the annual conference and the reality is like we part of our work is to flip that script right. and to say like we're the annual conference the annual conference office is here to resource the local church the in the in the book of discipline where we have our mission statement to make disciples of jesus christ for the transformation of the world there's a second sentence that accompanies that that says we believe local churches and extension ministries are the most effective arena through which disciple making takes right. place and that's it our does, goal that's right our, that's our metric we make disciples it, right and it, and it means that connectionalism is a feature not a bug and and that's and that's a challenging thing to overcome because especially in our recent history, if we're just going to look ourselves in the mirror, connectionalism hasn't been great, right? Like we've well, we've or, or or there have been elements of it that have been challenging, right? When we look at some of the infighting that we've had and look at look at the places of disaffiliation and things like that that have become what it means to be connectional, and that means there's a spirit and opportunity to recast that and to reclaim that because the reality is our communities that we're serving don't need churches that are fighting each other. They need churches that are cooperating together to meet the needs of community. We are so much stronger together than we are apart. And when we can, when we can bind together to hear the needs of, of community and live into that together, it's amazing the transformational power that that can have with it. Uh, and, and you're exactly right. Like, how do we measure that? How do we look to that as a sign of hope for the future? Cause that's ultimately like, that's that's what's great about at least for me that's what's great about the united methodist church is that we're never alone you know it's the it, john wesley's words on his dying bed we're the best of all the best of all is that god is with us wow. right like that's it's this incarnational theology that says there's never a moment in this life where we have to go it alone and and there's something truly beautiful about that when we can live in that together well it brings to mind um my favorite leadership model or guru was Colin Powell. I love him when he died. I had to sit Shiva. I mean, I was just devastated at his loss. But what I loved about uh, General Powell was that he, um, when he got to, uh, became Secretary of State, 
he went into a culture and all he heard was, well, what can we get from the embassies? They need to send us this. They need to do this. And, and he said, my biggest lift was to shift the culture because as I saw it, the embassies are out in the field. They know what's going on. They're experts in their areas. They're experts in their region. And we should be doing all we can here in Washington to make them effective, to resource them. And I was like, that is exactly the shift that has to happen in the United Methodist Church. And it's a huge lift. I mean, that will be every day I fight this culture of you serve us. And I've already said um, I need to, to uh, needlepoint for my wall. My mission is to transform hierarchy into connection and to move the, whatever we do here is in service to the local church and, and the movements always toward that end. But boy, it, the forces are, again, I can feel it already. Every day, it's a huge fight and fighting the headwind, but it's got to change if, well, if the annual conference is going to survive. It's, it's all, all we have to do is harken back to what you said at the beginning here about, about the movement piece. You know, Methodism in its, in its earliest form was a movement within an institution. Right. But the inst and it was a movement in large part because the institution had stopped being effective. Right. And, and there was this need for something in some way of living that would actually live our faith. And that's institutions ultimately tend to feed themselves first. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a Simon Sinek has a, a great um, model of, of leadership, like leaders eat last. Right. And that's it's right. almost like in an institution, we have to say institutions eat last. Right. Like how do we because ultimately like the 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 goodness we can we can have an amazing conference center and amazing staff and i think we do by the way but but if the local church is dying on the vine if people aren't being resourced in community that's just gonna that's that's not gonna exist anymore uh, and and ultimately it's not the point the point is for lives to be transformed for people to meet jesus for people to grow in relationship and uh, the more that we can live into that the better mm -hmm. yeah and I, I, you know, as we're thinking about the Methodist movement in uh, that first movement, right, the movement of the Holy Spirit, we miss that. We yeah. miss the fact that um, the Holy Spirit is actually already at work in these communities. Jesus and is out there waiting for us. Jesus yeah. is working. <laughs> Jesus is doing stuff. Um, and the church is, is, has a habit of sitting there waiting for people to come into our building, right? And so the conference, I think, has traditionally kind of had this same mindset of, here we are, you know, come to us. And so um, recognizing that the Holy Spirit is working in the conference, in the communities, and reorienting that whole direction um, is essential if we're going to survive. And I do believe, I, I Jonathan said it earlier, we're better together, right? If we don't have... A, a support network, then we've got a bunch of little churches trying to do it on their own without right. the resources to connect, without the, the, um, the, 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 the recognition that every one of them has different gifts and skills and strengths. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're here, all three of us, um, and all those we represent, right, are here to say, we want to help you get out there and find what God is doing in your communities. Well, and I think, you know, if I had to write my biggest lament for the last 25 years, maybe 50, maybe my whole life, um, 
it would be we've lost the sense of we, hmm. our culture, right? So independent. The rise of the megachurch, right? The rise of the solo, heroic, charismatic leader who have crashed and burned. I mean, let's just name it. From Bill Hybels at, at Willow Creek to um, the guy at Mars Hill. What's his name? Driscoll. Oh, Mark Driscoll. Uh, Hillsong, you know, it just, it just is. And I think a part of that is these guys get, there's no, there's no oversight of them. I I love it. I had a very prominent, uh, I did a a panel with a very prominent pastor and she said, I'm, I'm Lutheran because I'm, you know, I need a bishop. (laughs) I need somebody to hold me in check. I need somebody to, and, and I see, these guys are promoted, you know, by age 30, they're, they have these mega churches. There's not a lot. I don't get me wrong. They're, they're mature 30 year olds, but spiritual maturity often takes longer and is not cultivated where you're the, you know, heroic figure. And so uh, I, I value we, I value that, um, even even as a bishop, I have a whole council. And when I, I laugh that they're like, you don't hold, you, you know, they don't hold the bishops accountable. Well, you know what? I'm on the phone with bishops every day and we are constantly holding each other accountable and inquiring about where are you in your spiritual life? Have you lost sight of who you are? Is your spirit taken over the Holy Spirit? So those we conversations are important. And we've lost, COVID showed that. I mean, gosh, we, you know, my biggest nightmare was to wake up in the morning and have, you know, a huge Methodist church is, United Methodist Church is huge spreader and 50 people have died because of it. You know, I didn't want a super spreader event. And how do we navigate the we? How do we navigate the we? Um, that's why we have a connectional polity, right? That, um that it matters. We're only as strong as the weakest United Methodist Church, right? It matters. I can be in Richmond in a huge church or in, you know, you pick it and I can't say to heck with the rest of the state. If there are places where Christ isn't being made known and places that don't have a mission, then I want to pay into that pot. I want to be part of that. And I want to be able to pay for churches where nobody can afford to pay for them. That was a big reality in Florida where we had Haitian churches that were vibrant, but Mm. they were never going to be self-supporting because every Haitian member of that church sent most of their income back to Haiti to support the family. So how do we, how do we move into sacrificial we that um, I give, I give so that we can have United Methodist churches all over. And I'm not a solo dog pastor. I'm in ministry with all the other members of my order of elders or order of deacons or fellowship of local pastors. What I really love for Methodist clergy, there's not a day you're alone, right? You start out candidacy in a group because we believe in the power of community, the power of we and the accountability of yep. we. And I'm I that we includes 
the role of the laity Absolutely. as ministers in the communities in the that that the role of clergy is not to be the superhero that you were describing, right? The role of the laity is to take advantage of this education that they have. I mean, I'm I'm laity myself, but I have theological degrees, right? And I've always felt that I have this huge obligation as someone who has this education to share it with the laity that, that are around me because um they're the ones who are supposed to be doing the ministry. We in, in leadership are the equippers and the supporters, but they're the, the ones deployed on the front lines. They're the ones out in the community every day. And so I feel like that we um, has to be clergy supporting each other, but also clergy supporting laity, laity supporting clergy. It's got to be the big we, not just the little we. Right. And I think, too, we need to have greater expectations of laity, right? Don't abdicate your church to your clergy. Yep. Have a strong sense of the vision of your church. And you know what? I say this all the time. You don't have to have like a special clergy code to buy a commentary. No. You don't have, I mean, the, if you want to know more about the gospel of Luke, by God, get, I'd be glad to recommend resources. But yeah, I had a conversation you know, years ago with Mike Slaughter's wife at Ginghamsburg uh -huh. UMC, who was in charge of new members. And she said, Dwayne, one of the things that has helped our church grow is that we are very clear in our expectations. We tell people constantly, you are welcome here to participate in anything that our community does. We welcome you. We will never tell you you're not welcome. But if you decide to become a member of this church, you are making a covenant with God and with this community. Mm -hmm. And we expect you to join a small group. That is presence. We expect you to come to worship. That is presence. We expect you to serve. They just rattled off the list and they were very clear and explicit. Sometimes I wonder if we have made church the weak alternative to the other things that when people have nothing better to do, church is where they go because we've, we've, we've made ourselves seem so irrelevant. Yeah. Well, years ago, I joined a Rotary Club that had more requirements of me yeah. than, than the church. But I think that um, one thing I'm really enjoying is the the lay council, the lay leaders of the annual conference. We're working together through a um, publication by the Council of Bishops called Faith Working Through Love. And is it the best resource ever? I don't know. But I thought... We need to have deep discussions of theology and what we believe as United Methodists and how we interpret scripture because we've taken it on the chin by folks mocking an amazing heritage, right? That we we think and we ponder and we we value education and reason. We value that your experience definitely impacts how you read scripture, right? And somebody so well said the other day, that's why. When I read scripture, you know, at age 60, I read it far differently than I did at age 40. And at certain points in my life, I'll read a passage and see stuff I never saw before because I'm at a different place and I've experienced different things. So let's have respect for that. But I would say, laity, step it up. Do not act passively. Do not just, you know, show up on Sunday and demand what you want from a church but the question is, how how can I give? 
And, and, you know, we've had a big issue with attendance right after COVID. And I get so tired of folks. You attend church for your own spiritual edification, right? But you also attend because there's probably 10 people God's sending there that week who are broken and need ministry. And that's your role. It's we, right? It's not about, it's not about me. And um, so I think we've got a lot to do about, um, well, and, and if, you know, here's a metric I just thought of, Jonathan. Um, what if we asked every church, because these are key figures in my my time in pastoral ministry, because you can't do it alone, right? No church. I, I wish I lived in 1950s America, where a small church in a community could probably handle everything, right? But now the problems are way too great. So your partners have to be schools and government and other churches and other faith groups and para, parachurch groups. We've got it's going to be in all all of us together to address the huge needs. But um, I would ask, as part of the metrics, have you spoken with the guidance counselor at the nearest school? That was always my best resource. If I wanted to know what are the issues in this community, they see it day in and day out. Uh, have you talked to the social workers at the hospital? Have you talked to your sheriff and your local police chief? These are the resources you need. Otherwise, you're walking around in a fog. And and can you go to those people and say, we would love to be able to resource what you're doing with no strings attached? Right. Because so often, I, I just have to say, like, going in from, from the space of local church, the, the church that I moved uh, to Glen Allen from, it's called Herndon United Methodist Church. And it's right across the street from a 2,500 student high school in Fairfax County called Herndon High School, coincidence. But, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I remember the first meeting that I had with their principal, my first day on the job, uh, she she said, hey, um, you know, one of the things that we just have to be really careful about is so often when churches say they want to come and help us, they want to do it and then also preach at our kids and like and do that sort yeah. of thing. We have to realize that right. the nature of the gospel that we that we live and that we love is that it is a lived gospel. Right. When we live the gospel, that that is what gets people to ask questions. That's what gets people interested and engaged and ultimately to participate. When we go with like sort of I remember when I was in high school, there was a store called Heaven and Earth uh, and they started selling metal Bibles. And my youth pastor made fun of it and said, like, hey, well, now all of a sudden people are really going to feel it when we hit them over the head with the Bible. Like it and maybe that's not appropriate, but, you know, like that, that sometimes is what it feels like is is that the church goes in and forces sort of some sort of agenda or something right. instead of just saying like hey can we just love people well and then as as folks are able they can come after the fact and and we can we can continue to follow up because ideally if we're in relationship and we're not just transactionally like okay here's your bag of food we'll never see you again but like hey this is this is the thing that we're going to engage in day by day week by week we are going to be invested in the life of community it creates the sense of reciprocity and ultimately it creates a sense of trusted relationship where all of a sudden the church is not just some fancy building where you have to wear a sport coat when you walk in kind of thing. Right. But no, these are the people uh, that that do something for me. I, I, if I may, I might share just a brief story about five years ago I was in Peru 
and traveling through Lima with a guide. And, and there was a building that had a cross and flame painted on the side of it. And our guide had no idea what, what I did for a living. And, and so I kind of played dumb and, and I was like, Hey, um, I've seen that symbol before. Do you know what, what that's about? And he looked at it and he looked back at me and he said, you know, I, I, I don't know what that is or what exactly they do there, but I know anywhere that I see that symbol, I can get help. Wow. And that's always been just such a powerful reminder to me of like, that's, that's something really, really meaningful that, that of what connection can be, what church can be and what community can be when we stop feeling like we have to do all of the work ourselves and we just do the loving thing. Um, it's just that, that ends up being the big part of, of what well, we're the there to do. This is the loving thing. Right. Right. The whole community should notice that and come right. That it's not about getting people into your church. It's exactly. about that you bear witness to Christ and the love he has. And that should, and I argue that sticks out like a sore thumb in the world today. Oh my gosh. I mean, we had people, <laughs> I remember we had a youth group and we were on a major highway in Tampa and they went out and gave free car washes and somebody called the cops and they said, there's, there's a scam going down over. And it was like, no, on highway 301, we are not having a scam. We are just washing people's cars. Well, and that's, you know, it, it's in a world of mistrust and a world of skepticism about, so what are you actually trying to do here? What does it look like to just be the hands and feet of Christ? Right. And to say, we we have no other agenda, but to be a presence and an embodied, you know, so much of what I love about the ministry of Jesus is that it is incarnational, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, and that's so much of what the call of the church is, is not, we can sit here, we can do, you know, this is, I, I love this, this is great, but but we can just sit and talk about things or we can go and do things. Right. And that's where, you know, that conversation about laity is so important. The future of the church is lay driven. Like I love, I'm a pastor. I love being a clergy person. I'd love for everybody to be a clergy person, but that's not everybody's call. And, and the reality is thank if goodness. we, thank goodness, right. we're all clergy. That'd be yeah. that's why well, Paul says we can't all be eyes. We can't all be hands. We need variety. And, and there will be places that laity bear witness in that I would not be welcome in, or I would just be cast, you know, I would be judged or, you know, we deploy, right? We, yep. we deploy into every nook and cranny of the community to be Christ. Yep. And then we gather, we gather to worship God and to renew our commitment, but we're just fueling up. I had a pastor, he gave a great, you know, this is our, this is our, this is our, where we get refilled to go back out and but it's not the landing space yeah, well i you know the thing that makes us distinct the thing that we have that the world doesn't have is grace right? right why did they call the cops on you they called the cops on you because there's no concept that anyone would do anything for someone with no strings attached right that we as a church are called to use the resources we have, not for our own benefit, uh -huh. but for the benefit of the world, right? For God so loved the world. Um, and we on Christ's behalf are called to love the world too and and to use the resources we have to love the world. Right. Um, and that's something that is so countercultural. And yet people, I believe, are hungry oh. for a love that 
that transformative, right? We talked about transformation. They're hungry for that kind of love. They're hungry for the recognition that it's not all about me. I know the culture says it is, the consumer mindset says it is, our commercials say it is, but people know better. Yeah. And and so there we 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 stand on a message that says there is there is there is love for you that you don't have to do anything to earn. Or even even if you've done wrong. Yes. Right? Yes. It doesn't even mean you don't you don't have to earn it. It's just, Dwayne, you you jogged my memory a few years ago. I went, I've seen Les Mis several times, but I went and they did just a really good job of staging the scene. And it is just epic where Jean Valjean, you know, imprisoned forever, taken advantage of by the system that's unfair, um, can't find work because he's a convicted felon, on his last legs, always treated poorly goes and spends the night with the bishop, right? And the bishop and his sister uh, make dinner for Jean. And he, um, in the middle of the night, he gets up, he runs away, and he steals the I, a couple of silver spoons. They don't have much, but he takes their silver spoons and their silver candlestick. And um, the police capture him. And the next day, they drag him to the priest and or to the bishop, and they say, we found him. He had your spoons and your uh, silver candlesticks. And the bishop, rather than following the way of the world, pulls out the other candlestick and goes out and says, John, you forgot this one. I gave you this one as well. And in that moment the whole theater stopped in time and you could just hear people with sharp intakes of breath at that kind of mercy that kind of compassion that changed Jean Valjean's life and the whole book is fascinating if you want to read like this but that conversion that level of grace that transformation um is compelling still and you know the 2000 people in the fox theater that night in downtown atlanta witnessed it and once again were just stunned at its beauty and we've lost sight of that it's not to not to make this in a musical webinar but uh you know <laughs> you know like the the what i would call like the hammer line at the end of that uh production is uh the to love another is to see the face of god right right like it's yeah. it's it's really like that's that's what that's what mercy and grace do is is they awaken us to the holy that is inherent within every person and oh, it's and that story his whole life is poured out for others from that transformative, exactly. that one act of grace, like Christ has done for us his whole life is to serve others, to to have fair factories, to everything he owns is given to God. And he transforms the life of a child because of it. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Yep. And, and it's not about the buildings that the church owns. It's not about how much is in the plates 
Um, I worked with a chaplain at a university once who said relationships don't cost anything. No. And Telling people about Jesus doesn't cost anything. We, we've spent, spent so much, I'm talking about metrics again, right? We spend so much time worrying about, you know, how much, how much, how close are you to sustainability, right? right. What if we sold every building we've got and yeah. put it into ministry? I mean, that's, that's the question is how do we, Use this property we have, right, for the benefit the of the Holy Spirit. You know, yes. how, how is the Holy Spirit moving? And, and you know, in in Georgia and here we had mill towns that have been bustling and you know, vibrant churches, big churches that you know, beautiful churches that were down to five people and they fought tooth and nail. No, this is our heritage, and but a church has a life cycle, and it's not about the building. The church is about how. Can we use those resources where there are people who need to know Christ? And so every church has a life cycle. And it's a matter of stewardship, right? If if it, if a church huge building isn't needed in an area anymore, how do we use those resources to build one where there is? And man, in Florida, it killed me. We, we were in a we were in a new church setting, Alan was, and it cost a fortune to build a square foot of building right and we would they needed a new building and then we moved to cape coral florida and our church we're using sunday school classes as storage rooms and i was like uh oh, if we could just move these resources where they're needed and you know that brings to bear we've been talking a lot about how is your church building being used throughout the week right well and and it's when serving. we and when we start talking about like what what are the needs of communities and what are the needs of churches, there's a lot of alignment that can happen in that space. I was uh, listening to a consultant from North Carolina talking. He's talking about North Carolina, so surely this isn't an issue in Virginia, right? Uh, but but he said that in North Carolina, the median use of a church building throughout the week. So the, the what I think he talked about was like from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, Sunday to Sunday, you know, so seven days a week, those 12 hours a day. Uh, churches on average in North Carolina are used less than 10%. Right. You know, it's this, it's this like dramatic sort of emptiness and vacantness. Uh, when, when really like I love um, there's a, there's a church in our annual conference who will talk about that. They're, they're not a community center. They're a center for community. Um, and, and I think there's so much potential in that, right. Where, where you can, and, and we could, we could have some conversation about revenue generation and that oh, sort of right. thing. And that's, that right. might be another talk for another day, but like, what does it mean for, you know, for, for a person to believe that they don't have to have some sort of certain qualification to walk through the doors of this building, yeah. but just that by virtue of their humanity and who they are, they're welcome in this space. And by the way, they're going to find life in this space, maybe maybe through worship, but maybe not, maybe through some other kind of activity, some sort of initiative um, and being able to find that space of generous welcome and grace and ultimately to find that space of relationship. Yeah. Because that's ultimately, I mean, like we've been talking about, relationship is the thing. I would argue relationships do cost something, uh, but it's not money. It usually relationships come at the expense of us being right all the time, well, you yeah, know, and, and, and energy and, and um, listening to people who might not be like us exactly yeah. it's i think it's dorothy day the um the catholic from the early 20th century who says i really only love god as much as i love the person i love the least mm -hmm. and and there's something really beautiful about that mindset that and and you know my initial 
idea is to cringe at that and think like, oh, there are a lot of people I love the least. Uh, but but relationship forces that into into tension, right? And and says perhaps reconciliation is not just a fancy idea that we can write about in a textbook, but it's a lived practice that we need in order to see the holy in and around us because it's really there all along. Right, and, and you know, um, I'm paraphrasing, but I love I love Jesus when he says, "If you love those who love you back, big whoop." Right. Right. Big whoop. So, well, I, you know, clearly this is the beginning of many conversations and we could go on and on. And and uh, this is what we do every day. People are like, what do you do? Well, this is what we do at work every day. So uh, you've gotten a brief insight into our conversations, but uh, we look forward to expanding this conversation and to really um, to really make the move for the next chapter of the church. I think God's vision for the next uh, chapter of the church is let's get back to we, let's get back to reforming the institution, let's get back to a theology of grace and a theology of, you know, um, it is about, well, John Wesley wrote to his preachers and said, the only work you have to do is save souls. Mm. You don't have to run a preschool. You don't have to run a religious shop. You don't have to, you don't even have to have a building, right? Your job is to save souls. And that means a lot of different things in our world today. Whether you save people from trauma, whether you save people from depression, whether you save people from hunger, whether you save people, um, salvation, I think uh, uh, the heart of it is in the Hebrew word shalom, right? How do we love people to wholeness in Christ? Mm. How do we, how do we transform them into loving creatures? And that's the journey we're all on together. So, um, anyhow, uh, thank you guys. It's a it's a joy and a blessing to um, have you uh, in my life and work. And I'm looking forward to more conversations and great things in the future. So, thanks a lot. Man, thank you, Bishop. Take care.